Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We gathered last Sunday, even though everybody was kind of froze in at home and uh, we did not have an in-person meeting, I still believe firmly that we gathered together as a church family. Now, we gather online and you can search Faith on Hill Church for our YouTube, our Spotify, or our Apple podcasts. You can uh, go to faithonhill.com on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. for just a live stream feed of the Sunday morning sermon. And you can follow us at Faith on Hill on social media. We gather together online in small groups. We have an online small group that meets Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. And we have small groups that meet throughout the week in person. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. So even if you can't go on Sunday mornings because of work or things that are going on, you could still be with us online, check out the sermon through our podcast or our live streams, and then you could be part of a small group community every week. That's a totally valid way of connecting with the church. In person, we meet at 10.30 a.m. at our building on Hill Road, and we have kids' church. We have worship through song, prayer, giving, and the study of God's Word. And then, of course, we gather in small groups throughout the week. We have youth group that meets at Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. here at the church building. That's for middle and high school. We're going to keep studying the book of Joshua this morning. We're going to talk about spies and prostitutes and traitors and all this stuff. It's uh, a lot of stuff going on. So Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2 verse 1 says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Acacia Grove. That's where the Israelites were camped. And he said, go and look over the land, especially Jericho. So from where they were, Jericho was the first major city as they entered into the promised land. So it was the obvious first place that they were going to go as they were taking and conquering the promised land. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, Some of the Israelites have come here to spy on the land. So the king of Jericho sent messengers to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Oh, yes, the men came to me, but that I did not know where they had come from. I didn't know they were spies. Verse 5, At dusk, when it came time to close the city gate, they left. And I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, and you might catch them. But, verse 6, she had taken them up to the roof and then hidden them under stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. It is important to note that when she says, Lord, if you are reading 
your Bible, it'll say LORD in all capital letters. And we've talked about this often. We've talked about this in the 20-Minute Bible Study podcast. We've talked about it on the Starting Points podcast. We've talked about it on Sunday mornings. In the Old Testament, when it says LORD in all uppercase letters, that is the name of God. We aren't sure, should it be pronounced Yahweh or should it be be pronounced Jehovah? There is debate about that. I don't think it particularly matters. My feeling is that it probably, I lean towards the Yahweh camp, so that's what I will use. But you have to understand that the way, especially ancient Hebrew was written, there were no vowels. And that was to save space on the scroll because scrolls made from animal skin were rare and valuable. If you had Egyptian papyrus, incredibly valuable. You needed to write in a way that was economical. So they didn't have vowels. They had little marks, um, what are referred to as jots and tittles, and these little marks would kind of give some indication. But mostly, you just had to know from context. It's kind of like in English, where we have the word where or there. And we know from context, is it the there T-H-E-I-R, there, somebody owns something, or there, T-H-E-R-E, oh, you know, over there, in that, in that place over there, it's a directional, a locational thing. We can hear that word, there, and we can know from context whether it is a person having possession of something or a geographical location. So for some of these words in Hebrew, you just had to know from context or from your own knowledge and and memory how you pronounced a word because the vowels weren't there. This is where the thing gets tricky. They began to think that the name of God was so holy that they would not say his name out loud. Oh, it is the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they, or they would say, oh, the name. And, and you might hear, uh, you know, rabbis or, or friends who are, uh, you know, observant Jews or uh, Mattis Yahu, the Jewish reggae rapper, uh, you know, they'll talk about the Hashem. And if you've ever heard, you know, the, the Hashem, Israel, that means the name of God. And so they would just refer to it as the name, the Hashem. They wouldn't actually say it. So then after a while, they forgot how to say it. And there's no clear agreement about how it should be pronounced among both Jewish and Christian scholars. Why is that important? Well, I think there's a bigger picture idea. That there can be traditions and things that are developed that aren't in the Bible, that God never specifically commanded. He just said, keep my name holy. He didn't say, stop saying it. And we can have these ideas that develop that aren't really biblical, that aren't really things God told us to do. And then it causes problems down the road. I'm seeing this right now in a certain subset of extreme charismatic Christians, that they won't actually write God, G-O-D. They will write G slash or dash G, because they have taken on the same tradition. If, if you're somebody who does that, or if you're related or know somebody who does that, I'm not trying to call you out, but there is no place in the Bible for that. It is human-made foolishness. 
God has revealed himself to us. He doesn't want to hide who he is. But why it matters in this story is an understanding that when she says, the Lord, she's not speaking about, you know, God. You know, we all believe in a general God. You know, the Muslims believe in a God, and the Mormons believe in a God, and the Christians believe in a God, and the Jews believe in a God, and that's all kind of the same thing, right? She is being very specific. It's not her gods. It's not the gods of her people. It's not this God or a general vague God. It is specifically Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. We would extend that and say, oh, somebody says, oh, I believe in God. I would say, which one? Because we believe in the one God who has revealed himself in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, I, I believe in God. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Oh, I think he was maybe a good teacher. Then we don't believe in the same God. And it's important to understand that Rahab was specifically declaring a belief in the God that we serve, the God of the Bible. And she says that God, the Lord, Yahweh, has given you this land and there is great fear that has fallen on us. Verse 10, and we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage fails because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven and above all and, abond, and uh, above all and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my family and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. She's saying, I have saved you. I have not handed you over to the king. I've hid you. I've lied for you. I have protected you. In return, please spare my life when you come and take Jericho. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when Yahweh gives us this land. Verse 15 says, She let them down by rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, Go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return. Then go on your way. Because she's saying, hey, you're, the people who are after you, they've left, but they're going to the fords of the River Jordan. They're going to the place that is easiest for somebody to cross back over to where your people are. Instead, go up into the hills away from the river, hide there until the pursuers come back, and then sneak back across the Jordan. Verse 17, now the men said to her, the oath that you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother and your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside of your house into the street, their blood will be on their own hands and we will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our hands if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath that you made us swear. Agreed, she said. 
Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And when they left, they went into the hills and they stayed there for three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills. They forded the river. They came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him everything that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Yahweh has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. All right, let's talk about the spies. If you remember last week, chapter one, Joshua told the people, gather together provisions because in three days we're going to go and we are going to cross the Jordan. Chapter 2 takes place during that time. Chapter 1, God speaks to Joshua. Joshua speaks to the people. The people speak back. But just in kind of the, chrono, you know, the chronology of all of this, Joshua sent these spies out either before he talked to the people or around the same time, and they were gone for probably a little more than three days. That's why I tend to think he sent them out before. But it could also be that he sent them out when he was talking to the people and then they came back, but they hadn't gotten to the Jordan River yet. Either one's possible. I'm not going to get firm on this. But just to understand that the timeline of chapter two happens kind of in the middle of chapter one. He sends these spies out secretly and says, hey, go check out the land especially Jericho. And as we said earlier, it's because Jericho was the first major fortified city that they were going to come across. Now, the Bible is both prescriptive and descriptive. Prescriptive, hey, you should do that thing. Or hey, you should not do that thing. We use prescriptive mostly when we talk about going to the doctors or the pharmacy. I have a prescription. The doctor wrote down a prescription and I take it to the pharmacy and he, the doctor has prescribed that the pharmacist will hand me this medication or this treatment. Or the doctor has written me a referral and prescribed that I go to this type of physical therapy or this type of um, lab test or whatever. The doctor has said, do this thing or don't do this thing. You know, maybe a, a doctor's prescription might say, take these medicines, do this therapy, and also, while you're taking that medicine, because of side effects, avoid certain types of foods, or don't do this, or this activity, or what have you. There are medicines where you can't drive. There's medicines where you can't uh, have alcohol. There's medicines where you can't eat certain types of foods. Uh, you just have to kind of follow the prescription. Sometimes the Bible is prescriptive. And it writes a prescription for human life and human flourishing. And this is the way that you should go so that it will be well with you. The Bible talks about, hey, if you do these things, it will be blessing. If you do these things, it will lead to your suffering. Sometimes the Bible is descriptive. It's just describing what happened. This guy was here, and then they went there. This gal was doing this. And then she did this other thing. Uh, sometimes the Bible is telling us what to do or not to do. Sometimes the Bible is just telling us what happened. Here's where things get tricky. Is, um, which is it? Is the Bible telling us to do something? Is the Bible holding up something that happened and saying, hey, look at this. This is great. This is the way you should do that. This is a model for living. Or is it just describing something? Yeah, they went and did that thing. 
And it wasn't good, but they did it. Or, hey, they went and did that thing, and we're not going to comment on whether it was good or bad. We're just going to say, this happened. It's both. The Bible is not prescribing that people go and visit brothels. Nor is it, it's just describing what happened. The men went to Jericho and they stayed at this woman's house. Now we're going to get into the whole thing about her and and her profession or career or what have you. But it is not advocating for, for people to go and engage in sexual immorality. It's just saying this is what happened. The Bible here is modeling, and I believe this is seen throughout the whole Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. The Bible is modeling historical honesty. Historical honesty. The Bible is saying, hey, tell the truth about yourself and where you've been and where you've came from, both personally and collectively. In the book of Acts, Stephen who is the first martyr. He's the first person to die for his faith in Jesus. Stephen was standing before the ruling council of his people and he's telling them their story and he finally says, which one of the prophets did our fathers not kill? And what he's reminding them was that they had this big thing about talking about their grand history, talking about all the things, hey, we're God's chosen people and we are the sons and daughters of Abraham and Moses was our father and he gave us the law. And Stephen goes, really? God sent the prophets. Jeremiah imprisoned, Isaiah put to death, mistreated, ignored. There there is history after history of God's prophets being horribly abused by God's people. He says, tell the truth. Tell the real history. One of the things that I love and yet is so challenging about the Bible is how honest it is. I mean, you would think Peter, he is not the first pope, no matter what you heard growing up. But he 100% was the leader of the 12 disciples. Among the 12, he's the leading voice. And he denied Jesus three times. God told Peter, go to Cornelius' household. And Peter's like, no. There is brutal honesty. David, he's like the ultimate king of Israel. And yet it tells the truth about his sins. Not just with Bathsheba. But all throughout his life, it is incredibly honest about David. You can keep going. Abraham, it tells the truth about when he lacked faith. It tells the truth when he was cruel. It tells the truth when he sinned sexually. It tells the truth. The Bible is modeling honesty. This was our conquest in the land. And these two brave spies went out to check out the land. And then they went to a, a prostitute? Now, it does not tell us, did they use her services? We're going to get here into the story of Rahab. We've talked about the spies. Let's talk about Rahab for a minute. Verse 2 makes it clear that she's a prostitute. But many rabbis, historians, tried to depict her as more of an innkeeper. Oh, no, she was an innkeeper. She ran a guest house. Now, 
that's probably true. We have to take away our concepts of what prostitution is in our day and think what would it have been in their day. And there was two types of prostitutes. Uh, in, in the time of when the New Testament was being written, prostitution was largely um, religious. You could go to the temple of Diana, the temple of Aphrodite, the temple of these Greek or Roman gods, and there would be temple prostitutes. That was also true in the Old Testament with the Baals, in the Babylonian system. Temple prostitutes. Women, also men, these temple prostitutes, and you could engage with them, and, and it was considered totally normal. You go, and you go to worship, and then you engage in sexual activity, immorality, with someone, and that's okay. And then you could go home to your family, and you would think nothing of it. Then there were secular prostitutes. These are more the types that we have in our culture, right? Uh, people who had a house, and you knew if you went to that house, you could pay for services. She's, uh, I think it's generally agreed that she is a secular prostitute. She probably did just run a guest house. You could come and you could stay there. And if you wanted to make use of the services that she or somebody else that was connected with her offered, you could, but you didn't have to. It wasn't like 100%. But what's interesting is that there was in Jewish tradition an attempt to sort of clean up her image, to make her look better to history. Conversely, Christianity embraced her as a convert. Origen, who's one of the early church fathers, he was one of the key leaders of the early African church, one of the more influential guys in early church history. He said this, The first Joshua sent spies before him, and they were received into the harlot's house. So the second Joshua sent his forerunners, whom the publicans and the harlots gladly received. And what he is saying is this, The difference between Joshua and Jesus in terms of a name is the same difference between John and Ivan, John and Yvonne, John and Juan. Like they're all based off of the same name, just changed slightly from different language to language. Joshua and Jesus are essentially the same name. So what Origen was saying is Joshua the Joshua whose book we're studying right now, sent out spies and they found welcome in the house of a prostitute. Jesus sent out his disciples and he says they were received by the publicans and the harlots. Basically, he's saying the sinners received the gospel, the tax collector and the prostitute, the unsavory person, the, the unrespectable person received the gospel of Jesus with gladness. Jesus went and ate with the sinners. What we're saying is, is that Rahab was received as a convert. When she says it's Yahweh, it's not our gods who are doing this. She is throwing in her lot with God and his people. She says, when you come and take our city, I know what's happening. Will you spare me? She's asking for mercy. One of the dangers that can happen in the church 
is if we start to make Christianity more respectable, more safe, more palatable, and we stop being honest with our history, honest with our collective history, honest with our personal history, we need to be truthful about things. And that's hard. Jesus brings the message of hope and salvation to all people. But the truth is, throughout history, the Christian message has found more receptivity among people considered less than respectable. Among people who aren't the highest of the highs, who aren't the wisest of the wise. It's interesting. Our own church and our family of churches has a history in this. God was moving on the east coast of America. And people began to get saved. And people started to preach the gospel to their neighbors. And among German-speaking immigrants, churches were born. And our heritage goes back to these non-English-speaking churches. It is likely that Faith on Hill started in 1876 as either a non-English-speaking congregation or more likely as a bilingual congregation. People talk about the decline of the church in America, and it is true that among American establishment, among white Americans, the church is in decline. The church among immigrant communities, the church among minority and ethnic communities is thriving. The Hispanic church, the Vietnamese church, the church among African immigrants, the church among uh, smaller uh, Asian immigrant groups. The church is still strong in the Chinese community. It's still strong in the African-American community. What we're saying is this, that when we talk about like the church in decline, that's a very white-centric thing to say. And if we try to make the church palatable to the respectable, we aren't doing what the Bible is modeling here. Now, does that mean that we need to be needlessly abrasive? No, not at all. We've talked about this. We want to bring the gospel to our community. And that's what we want to do. We want to do it in a way that is understood, in a way that is winsome, in a way that is loving, in a way that is not off-putting, because Jesus is off-putting enough as it is. And so we can bring the message in the best way that we know how to communicate. But that being said, let's recognize the history here that Jesus has been received and accepted not by the ultra-religious, not by the respectable, but by the sinner, by the tax collector and the prostitute. And he changes lives. He changes lives. And that's what's happening here. Rahab is saying, look, I can see what's coming, but will you have mercy on me? I can see what's coming. Will you have mercy on my family? Now, why is all this in the Bible? Well, for the people of Israel, the book of Joshua is really about this is how we got here. There are so many things in the Old Testament that are just, this is just the history or this is the writing of our prophets. But the earlier books are about this is how we got here. 
Genesis tells the story of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Exodus, the story of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Then the other three books in the Torah, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, they tell the story of, hey, so this is how we got here, but this is what God thinks about that. You remember how Abraham did this? This is what God says about that. Don't do it. You remember how Isaac did that? This is what God says about that. Don't do that. Do you remember how Reuben or Simeon or uh, Judah, the, the, you know, these patriarchs did this? This is what God says about that. That was not a good idea. This is the way that God says that we as his people should live. And then you get into the book of Joshua. And, and it answers questions for the people of Israel. This is how we got here. This is how we got into the promised land. This is how the land was divided up. This is why there are two and a half tribes that still live on the other side of the Jordan River. This is why, uh, which we'll get to in chapter 6, there is a major uh, family or clan that lives among the people of Israel who have their heritage from a Canaanite, a non-Jewish woman named Rahab. And it answers these questions. And it's in the Bible for us as Christians because it gives us a picture of the gospel. It says, hey, the gospel goes out to the people on the margins of society. The gospel goes out to the people who aren't considered respectable. The gospel goes out to all people and it is received. And mercy can be had no matter who you are or what you have done. And we're not going to try to clean up or sanitize our story because that diminishes the amazing work of God, the grace, the mercy that we have experienced and received. And let's be honest about who we were and what God has done. Now, they make this deal. They say, yeah, if you put out you know, this red cord to show. And what this is doing is this is showing to the soldiers, because remember, the, the spies don't know God's plan. Like, I think we, a lot of us know what happens to Jericho. We'll get to that next week. They don't know God's plan, so they just said, look, when we come, if you have this out, we won't touch your house. Anybody in it, they'll, they'll be told, do not go there. Don't take those guys out. But if they leave the protection of the house, that's on them. And if you betray us, we're not bound anymore. And if you don't display these, these red uh, cords, these red ropes, then we're not bound anymore. And the red cords, the red ropes, that would have been a public display. Put those out. Show whose side you have chosen. And it's calling people who have placed faith in Jesus to publicly affirm that faith. Publicly affirm what God has done. Publicly affirm which side you have chosen. I love this story because it's honest. I love this story because it's full of hope. I love this story because it speaks to our day and age. Right now, old, young, right, left, doesn't matter. There are people who are spiritually prostitutes. They've sold themselves to false gods. They've given themselves away to idols. They've given themselves away to rebellion against what is true. But the good news of Jesus comes and that offer of salvation is there for all people. I'm so thankful for that. That no one is, is bound by who they were. Rahab was welcomed into the family. 
and she walked among the people of God with her head held high. She wasn't that person anymore. She was new among a new people. Just as God has made us new and has invited us into this new family of faith that is of all peoples, tribes, tongues, languages, the church, worldwide, universal, all true believers in Jesus Christ. And we're here, we're together. And yes, this is who we were, but this is who God is making us to be. What a great hope that we have. What a great hope that is offered to all people who will surrender themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, who will turn from their sins and say, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And I believe that Jesus hears that prayer wherever you are right now. And the Holy Spirit of God is calling out to all people, come, consider Jesus, repent, turn to Jesus, give up the fight, find rest. God bless you. Cannot wait to keep studying the book of Joshua next week as we find out what happens as the people cross the river. And we'll be together in the small groups talking about the book of Joshua all throughout the week. We'll see you then. Be